eternities, and we're here to worship him today. I hope you sense that as you join in to worship this morning. Let's talk to Jesus right now as we enter into this time of worship. Lord, I thank you that we don't stop worshiping when we stop singing. We worship you as well when we open up your word and we receive it for what it is, your amazing gift to us. And I pray, God, that our hearts will be ready to receive it. May we have teachable hearts today. Lord Jesus, you gave everything you had for us on the cross. And today, we worship you together here at Riverview. Love you, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in a series entitled Unstoppable, the story of the church. And I want to get different pictures of kind of unstoppable things. I like this one of this tree rising up out of a junkyard, this beautiful tree. The junk couldn't stop it. And the same is true of the church in this world today. All of our rebellion, all of our sin against God could not stop the unstoppable thing called the church because Jesus is behind it. He's behind the birth and growth of the church. And you're a part of that story. The story continues today. The book of Acts giving us the way in which the church started what you're a part of today as a believer in Jesus Christ. We've said it many times, the church is not a building. The church is the people inside, part of God's amazing family. The bottom line of our talk today is this. It's all about the birth of the church, right? The church is born. We're in Acts chapter 2. God's plan for saving the world continues in this new entity known as the ecclesia, It's the Greek word for the church, the called out ones. When you hear the word ecclesiastical, that's all from this Greek word ecclesia. Uh, The ones that have been called out of the world. What have we been called out from? The bad thinking of the world. The bad direction of the world. The knowledge now that we have been created by this awesome God, that we are not the product of random mutations over billions of years, but we are the product of a God who created us in his image. This awesome God that knows your name, knows everything about you, and loves you, and loved you all the way to the cross. We are called out to glorify God through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. See, that's what happened at the beginning of the church. Something radically different than what was happening in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the temple was in Jerusalem. Before that, they had the tabernacle that they pulled with them, the Israelites did, wherever they went in their wanderings in the wilderness. But then building the temple in Jerusalem and God would meet with the Israelites at that temple, the holy place and the holy of holies and all the ceremonial washings the priests had to do to enter into the holy place. And then once a year in the holy of holies, all the sacrifices that were a covering for sin, all of them pointing to the coming of Jesus. The Bible says it, right? Uh, The the blood of bulls and goats, they can't pay for sin. It was a covering. It's like what you do when you clean your house. You get a whole bunch of dirt together, you pick up the corner of the carpet, and you sweep it under the carpet, right? That's what you do. Is the dirt still there? Yes, it is. But it's covered. You can't see it. That's exactly what the sacrifices of bulls and goats and sheep and lambs and all those things. What they did is a covering for sin until the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, 
came and laid down his life for you and for me. It's all paid for by the blood of Christ. It's a new thing that God does in the birth of the church. And Jesus said it was unstoppable. Don't you love this statement when he said, on this rock, talking about himself, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. No matter what hell throws at the church, and it throws a lot, it will not prevail against the church. The church will continue to grow and impact millions of lives, yours included, yours included, by the power of Jesus Christ, this amazing person that really walked 2,000 years ago. You know, there's no reputable scholar that denies that a person by the name of Jesus existed 2,000 years ago. What they will challenge is who Jesus was, but no one denies that there was a person by the name of Jesus that walked 2,000 years ago. And virtually every scholar will acknowledge that the one life that has impacted this planet more than any other that has ever lived on this planet is Jesus Christ. No one even comes close to the impact of this amazing God-man who made an incredible difference on this planet. Acts 1-8, we talked about it last week, uh, the, the, really the outline for the book of Acts when Jesus said this to his disciples, you will receive power. Okay, so there's an additional power coming for believers. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my martyreos, my martyrs, my witnesses, in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Riverview Church, I pray that we never lose our passion for sharing this good news of Jesus Christ with people to the end of the earth, that we would never lose that passion. We have 24-plus missionaries and organizations that we support. Thank you, missions team, for keeping that all organized for us. But that we are part of this mission that God gave us. We don't have to reinvent the mission of the church. Jesus gave it to us right here. You're going to be my witnesses. What's the best evangelistic program here at Riverview Church? It's you being placed exactly where God wants you. You might say, well, I'm the, only, I'm the only Christian in my high school. Oh, that's amazing. God's entrusted that entire high school to you for you to reach that entire high school. And by the way, there are more. There are more around than you even realize. But God has placed you strategically where you're at to be a light for him. You're going to be his witnesses, his martyreos, to reach people for Christ. I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the chapter that gives us the birth of the church. You might say, well, Mel, how big is this event? I've heard about things like the crossing of the Red Sea by God parting the waters. I've heard of Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments. How big is Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2 is huge. It is one of the most important events in all of Scripture, the birth of the New Testament church. Here it is. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. How many were all? Probably the 120 that were mentioned in Acts chapter 1. 120 of them together in an upper room. Together waiting for what Jesus promised. In a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It says in Acts 1.5. Jesus said it's coming. They were waiting for it. This feast of Pentecost was part of the Jewish calendar. Let me tell you a little bit about Pentecost. I want to stop here for just a second. What is Pentecost? It's 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. 
that, that began. Well, what is the Feast of First Fruits? Uh, as you know, Jesus was crucified on what Jewish holiday? Passover, exactly. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Well, what was the Passover lamb? That was that lamb that was sacrificed by the Jews when they were in Egypt in slavery. God told them, this is the 10th plague that was sent on the land of Egypt. God told them to sacrifice this lamb put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and anyone inside the house with the blood of the lamb on the doorpost would be safe. But if a house did not have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the firstborn would die. From the lowest slave in Egypt up through the palace of the Pharaoh. And that's exactly what happened. And that Passover lamb was celebrated every year by the Jews as a lamb that led to freedom from physical slavery. But ultimately we know that Passover lamb was a pointing to Christ, a type of Christ who would come and he too was sacrificed in Jerusalem on that Passover, the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, which did much more than free people from human slavery. It freed you and me from the slavery of sin, from the penalty of our sin. The penalty that broke our relationship with God. The penalty that demands separation from a holy God. But God loving us sent his son to be the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Jesus sacrificed on that Passover day. The Bible in the Old Testament says that the first Sabbath after Passover, the next day would be the feast of first fruits what that was all about was this the Jews would take the very first of their harvest and bring it to God as an offering it was really a step of faith right because it was the first they had received but they were to give it to God believing and trusting God that more would come and 50 days after that feast of first fruits which by the way that feast of first fruits was the first Easter Sunday that would have been that Sunday that Jesus rose again from the dead on that first day of the Feast of First Fruits. That's why the Bible says Jesus is our first fruits. Meaning he's the first example of millions more to come. If you want to w wonder about what happens to you when you die, just look at Jesus. When Jesus died, his body was still in the, the grave, in the tomb. His spirit had risen. He ascended to the Father. We know that, right? separated from his body that's exactly what happens to you when you die absent from the physical body present with the lord but on that first easter sunday the first day of first fruits jesus body was resurrected a glorified body exactly what's going to happen to your body jesus being the first fruit of millions more to come he fulfilled that feast as well and 50 days after that would be the Feast of Pentecost, a Greek word which means 50th. It would be the end of the celebration of the grain harvest. In essence, the end of harvest. This was like a Thanksgiving feast for the Jews. Think of our Thanksgiving. People travel and see families. Or they're, they're celebrating what God has done, the faithfulness of God in their lives. That's what Pentecost was like. The end of the grain harvest, celebrating God's faithfulness. 
And historians tell us that Jerusalem would swell to about three times its normal population. Jews from all over the Mediterranean world would travel to Jerusalem and celebrate Pentecost, celebrate their Thanksgiving holiday. It was at this time that the church was born. See, the Feast of First Fruits is instructed in Leviticus 23 to give the first part of their ripening harvest to God. This was to occur the day after the first Sabbath, after Passover, or as we might say today, that very first Easter. Let's keep reading in Acts chapter 2. It says this. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were seated, seating. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Uh, scholars have debated, was this more than just a miracle of speaking in different languages? Was there a miracle of hearing as well? I believe it was more the former. Uh, a miracle of speaking in other languages that they did not know. And these people were amazed and astonished, verse 7, saying, are not all these people speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, and a lot of other hard-to-pronounce places, I'm telling you. Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What this means is this, my friends. The beginning of a new thing that God was doing called the church, the ecclesia. Now God would take up residence in the hearts and lives of believers. That did not occur in the Old Testament. The Old Testament did not have those believers, God living within them. But in the New Testament, at the birth of the church, they did. How could that happen? Because the sacrifice of Jesus led to us receiving the righteousness of Christ. We were cleaned out. Our sins were paid for as far as the east is from the west. We were made as white as snow. God could now live in the temple of the human heart. Like Stephen would later say, and I've shared this before, no longer would God meet with people in temples made of stone. But now would meet in the temple of the human heart. The birth of the church the birth of a group of people that would receive power from the Holy Spirit to do exactly what God had called them to do. It is an amazing thing. And we see this sound of a mighty rushing wind that calls people in the city of Jerusalem, packed with people from all over the Mediterranean world. They come together to see what's happening. I, I refer to this sound as kind of a siren. In fact, I was with my son in a basketball game this week and my wife was home alone. And... Uh, all of a sudden, she heard all these police sirens come into our neighborhood. And she's like, wait a minute, that, that sounds like it's in our street. And all these p police cars came into our streets, sirens blaring. And what had happened was, this was at night, three houses down from us, two guys had attempted to break into one of our neighbor's house. We know the neighbors well. While he was still home, they didn't know he was still home. They thought he had left. 
and they were trying to break into his house. He called 911, and about six or seven cop cars came, sirens blaring, helicopters came over the neighborhood looking for these two individuals who were breaking into the house. It attracted a crowd. Everyone was asking, well, what was happening? What happened in our neighborhood last night? What's going on? My wife was home alone. She took care of it, I'm sure. I don't know why it is. All these things happen when I'm never there. I am never at these places, these times when things like this happen. God's protecting me. You're there all by yourself, honey. You can do it. But that's exactly what happened here. What's going on? What's happening? Something really big. The birth of the church, which will spread around the world. That's the first thing I want you to know today. It's the basic truth that we see in this passage. God gives birth to a new thing called the church. A new thing called the church. In the Old Testament, it was Israel. God was working through Israel. We don't know why, necessarily, God chose Abraham to be the father of this great nation. Certainly, Abraham was a godly man. But God chose in his sovereignty the nation of Israel to bring about this blessing that would impact the entire world. He told Abraham, through your descendants, the entire earth will be blessed. Who was he referring to? To Jesus, the one we worship today. And God was working through the nation of Israel, prophecy after prophecy about this coming Messiah who would be God's answer to sin. But now in the New Testament, God begins something new, no longer under the covenant of the law, now under this new covenant. We celebrate that every time we take communion here at Riverview Church, right? We take the cup and we say, this is the new what? New covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This new relationship with God, this new presence of God in our lives, indwelling Holy Spirit within us, all part of God's redemptive work. This is a big moment in the redemption history of God. A new thing called the church. But God still has promises for Israel. Please don't think that, oh, well, if God's working through the church, then obviously Israel is ignored. No, in this church age, this period of grace, like Romans says, we're not no longer under the law, but under grace. I have people come to me and say, hey, Mel, it says in the Bible here in Leviticus that you should be doing this and this and this and this. And I say to them, that's the old covenant. You have to understand one big thing about the Bible. There's the old covenant of the law. The Bible makes it clear in the New Testament. We're no longer under it because Jesus fulfilled it all. How ridiculous would it be for me to sacrifice some bird in my backyard as a sacrifice for my sins when we have the sacrifice of the Son of God on the cross for us. It doesn't get any better than that. You can't improve on that by sacrificing some animal. So of course those things have stopped. All those washings that we have to do, you don't have to do that anymore. You have the righteousness of Christ in you. It doesn't get any better than that. That's why you can enter into the presence of God and say, Abba, Daddy, Father, because he sees in you the righteousness of his Son. It's an amazing age of grace. God's riches poured out on us at Christ's expense. It's a beautiful story, and it's true. I 
hope you take that and live it out, the presence of God in your life. But there are still promises left for Israel. There still are promises. We talked about some of them last week, how Israel became a nation again, that there will be a time of a covenant between the Antichrist and Israel, and there will be a seven-year period in the middle of it that will be broken. There are still promises that remain for Israel. It's not ignored. God's primary vehicle for changing the world is the church. There is no plan B. There's no up there in heaven God going, oh man, if this church thing doesn't work out, we got to go back to Israel and use them. No, it's the church all the way. No plan B. This is God's plan for changing the world until, as we talked about last week, he returns and the church is raptured out of this world seed, ultimately leading to the millennial kingdom that Jesus will establish on this earth. Here's the second thing I want you to know today. It's this. God initiates a new presence with the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is now living inside of us. He descends on these believers, as we see in the text here. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And people were hearing the gospel in their own language. Wait a minute, these, these people aren't from my area. They're not from Libya. They're from here. How do they know my language? They speak it perfectly. God was doing a miracle. The Holy Spirit was living inside of them. It's exactly what Paul meant when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? My prayer would be that each one of you would have this sense that God is living inside of you. We kind of know it intellectually, but we don't live as if that's the truth. God lives in you. When you pray, he's right there. When you talk to him, he's within you. He knows every thought you will think before you even think it. He's living inside of you. People said to me, well, what about Jesus? I thought Jesus was living inside of us. If the Holy Spirit, well, is it Jesus too? It's a mystery, right? But the Bible talks about both. One of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament, Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. Well, how did that happen? I'm still alive. Here it is. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Oh, I get it. When I came to faith in Christ, I died of my old self. I died of my old way of living. And I live now for Christ. He lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Don't ever doubt the love of God. If you ever do, go to the foot of the cross and see Jesus nailed to a piece of wood that he created for six hours. I do that often in my heart and in my mind. If I ever doubt the love of God, I died for me. He had nails driven in his hands and his feet for me. I can't doubt the love of God. The truth of Jesus within us is mentioned a few times in the New Testament. Here's just one other verse. Colossians 1.27 Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this whole concept of the Trinity, of God within us, yes, the Holy Spirit lives within us, Jesus living within us. And this new thing came with these signs of a sound of a mighty rushing wind, I believe representing the presence and the power of God at that moment as the church was born. And tongues as a fire descending on those in the upper room. Fire in Scripture often refers to a process of purification as the Holy Spirit comes inside and baptizes us, cleans us up and takes the righteousness of Christ and gives it to us. 
Is this mentioned in other places? It is, actually. The baptism with the Spirit. Matthew 3.11, there's John the Baptist. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me, that's Jesus, is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's said again in Mark 1.8. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Luke 3.16, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. The one who's coming, who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals, he will baptize with you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John 1.33. John speaking again, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. When did that happen, by the way? At the baptism of Jesus. Remember when John baptized Jesus? And the Bible says, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, and the Father spoke out of heaven and said, this is my Son, whom I love. All three persons of the Trinity, at that amazing moment of the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus, all three persons, part of the deity, three in one. As Scripture clearly teaches, Acts 1.5, Jesus prophesied about it. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Acts 11, and I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Let me talk about that. Before I talk about it, let me say this. There are people who believe differently than I do about this issue. And there are people that believe differently about this issue and fellowship and worship here at Riverview. And let me say this. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. But on this issue, they still love to worship here. We love that they come. They believe differently. And I understand that. So as I say this, know that there are people who love the Lord, who are believers, who believe differently. My roommate in seminary became my best friend. He was the son of a charismatic Assembly of God preacher, and he believed there was a second experience that after conversion, you were looking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And with the baptism, he believed that you would speak in tongues. And we debated this often as roommates. I loved him as a brother in Christ, but I believed he was holding a doctrine that I did not see in Scripture. And as we debated it, I need to tell you, I won that debate every time. But... He believed differently, and I loved him. Brother in Christ, there are people who believe differently here. We love you, and we are so thankful that you want to fellowship here. But this really is the position that Riverview Church takes on this matter. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is about this. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit places a believer into permanent union with Christ and with other believers in the body of Christ. That at the moment of salvation... The Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ, takes up residence within you. You might say, well, Mel, in Acts chapter 2, that didn't happen. These people were already believers, and it seemed to happen later than their conversion. Exactly. Here's the reason why. Because this was the birth of something new. You have to understand, this is a transition period from the old covenant to the new. This is the only time this would happen. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 10, when Gentiles came to faith in Christ, and I'll explain exactly why later, but the bottom line issue was, hey, if that didn't happen, if they didn't have the same signs that the Jews did in Acts chapter 2, if Gentiles didn't have those signs, the Jews would say, wait a minute, 
Did they get the Spirit like we did? And of course they did. Because all the signs that happened in Acts chapter 2 happened in Acts chapter 10. And Peter stands up in Acts chapter 15 and says, hey, these people are Christians just like us. God gave them the Spirit just like he gave, them, gave him to us. So why would we require them to be circumcised or do anything from the Old Testament when God accepted them the way they were? This was a new thing that God was doing. From this moment forward, every new believer at the moment of conversion would be baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Here's just one verse that I think supports that very clearly. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. He's talking about the church, the body of Christ, how we all have different gifts, all have different functions but we work together in a healthy way. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. See, it's real clear here. Paul's saying to the Corinthian church, all of you have been baptized into the body of Christ. And I would share this with my roommate. In your church, are, is everyone baptized by the spirit? No, there are some people who are still waiting. You're baptized by, well, then that contradicts this verse. We've all been baptized into one body. It happens at conversion when you enter the body of Christ. There's no mention of a second experience. What, what he believed was that when a person comes to faith in Christ, you're a Christian, but you're kind of limping along a little bit until you're baptized by the Spirit. Then you become a supercharged Christian. And I said, man, you would think that if that was the teaching of God's Word, that that would be on every other page. If we're all somewhat deficient without the baptism of the Spirit, that every other page of Paul's letters, he would be saying, be sure to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not there. It's not there. The book of Acts is a very unique time in church history when the church was born, transitioning from the old to the new. But from that moment on, every new believer will be baptized into the body of Christ at conversion. See, the baptism with the Holy Spirit does two things. It identifies us spiritually with the death and resurrection of Christ. But it also joins us to the body of Christ and identifies us as being united with other believers. Scripture indicates these truths. The baptism with the Holy Spirit occurs the moment a person is saved. It is not the same experience of salvation, but occurs at the time of salvation. It is not a second experience following conversion. What breaks my heart are the believers I've met over the years who said to me, Mel, I've been struggling because I want the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm waiting for God to give me this baptism so I can be a true, full-fledged, on-fire follower of God. And I explained to them, that's not what that's about. The baptism of the Spirit occurs at salvation. What you're seeking is not more power from God. God's given us all the power we need. What God desires from us is not more from God, but more of us given to Him to give our hearts more fully to God. God is not withholding anything. He gives us all the strength and all the power we need to follow Him. See, God has given believers everything in Christ. When we are saved, we are complete in Him. We lack nothing. There's nothing else for Him to give us. Scripture tells us 
Nowhere are believers commanded to receive any second blessing that would give them more power. All power is already available. I love the verse in Romans chapter 116 when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Not ashamed. For it is the what? Power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. If you want the power of God, it comes to you at salvation. If I'm not experiencing that power, it's not God withholding it, saying, wait a minute, you've got to have that second experience. You've got to speak in tongues at least once. Nowhere in the scriptures is that commanded. But what is commanded is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to give more control of God uh, in your life to God. The power of the Holy Spirit working in our person's life is something that should be desired. But some have legitimately experienced this encounter with God and they label it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I would say more accurately from Scripture, it's the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit filling you. So Romans 8.14, good news, all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. All who are led by the Spirit, and that's our desire, to be led by Him. Here's the last thing I want to emphasize as we close. God reemphasizes his desire for the salvation of the world. All these people from these areas of the world are here at Pentecost, all hearing in their language. What is God saying at that moment? That this is for everyone. All the walls are being broken down. God desires, like it says here in 2 Peter 3, 9, not wishing that any should perish but that all should come to salvation. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4 says this, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. He wants this message to go to everyone. So as we close today, I want to give you some now what's. Number one, ask these questions of yourself. Is my passion for the church mirroring God's passion for the church? You know, I get it. The church is an imperfect place, but that's the beauty of the church. That's the beauty of the church. Imperfect people coming together. I remember I was giving blood down at Palomar Medical Center, as I do on a regular basis. And this woman that I was talking to, I'll, I'll just start up a conversation with people that are taking my blood. And I said to her, yeah, what do you do? And how long have you been doing this for? And I said, I'm a pastor. Oh, you're a pastor. I said, yeah, what church do you go to? Oh, I don't go to church. My church is nature. I'm out in the forest. That's where I commune with God. God and me, we're on good speaking terms. And I said to her, that's okay, except for the fact that the Bible says you've been given a gift, a gift and ability to serve God by serving others. And if you're alone out in the forest, that's not happening. Now, it's always a kind of a dangerous thing to get in a theological discussion when you have a needle in your arm, amen? It's a little, she kind of wiggled it around, I thought, a little more than she had to when I said that. It's always a dangerous thing. But you have a gift, God's plan is for you to use that in the healthy functioning of the body, but we're all imperfect people. But God's plan to change the world is the church. Number two, do I walk with an awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life? Do I walk with that awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life? Third question is this, do I nurture the boldness for my faith that early Christians evidenced in their lives? These disciples who were afraid in an upper room, uh, cowering before the resurrection, afraid that they might be the next to be crucified. These disciples turned the world upside down when they experienced the resurrection of Christ, as you and I know to be true 
And lastly, as we close, do I acknowledge Jesus as the universal remedy for the world today? God desired for this message to be shared around the world. That was the power of this moment when everyone was hearing the gospel in their own language. This is for everyone. And that's our passion here as well at Riverview. Amen, church? Amen. Hey, let's pray together this morning. And as your hearts are bowed today, I pray that every one of you here has made a decision to place your faith and trust in Jesus. That God has given you as a believer in Christ all the power necessary to walk the walk he's called us to. And our task is to be more and more in submission to the work of the Spirit in our lives. To be more and more like Jesus every day. To walk out of this place knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the answer for the world today. And we are entrusted with this amazing gospel message. Lord, we love you. Thank you for dying on the cross for us. Lord, we submit our hearts to you today and our lives to you. This is all for you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's all stand together. Amen. Ladies, don't forget to sign up for the women's Bible study coming up on, November, on uh, February 4th. We have elders in front of love to pray with you and live this week. All for him. God bless you. See you on the patio.